welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make podcasts. I spend most of my life online, but I've got no idea how to fix any of the devices that help me to spend my time there. But I've been invited to a party. It's called a restart party, and this party might just help me to understand the technology that I use every day and all the time. A restart party is a pop-up community repair event where skilled volunteers help people diagnose and repair their broken electronics. They are organised by the Restart Project, who are a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. So let's go now to a restart party. So what's your name? Isabel. Why have you come to the restart party tonight? My brother-in-law's headphones stopped working and he's having something else fixed, so I said I would sit in and watch how to fix headphones. I also have some headphones that are a bit faulty as well, so I wanted to learn from the professionals. What makes you want to keep hold of your gadgets? Well, without sounding like a bit of a consumerist, I, I get kind of attached to things. I'm used to the same brand of something like headphones. It's quite frustrating when something like that breaks because you just end up buying the same brand again and the same fault happens but you never really complain or fix it yourself you're listening to this now and it's normal that you're listening to it and it works but if the sound was to suddenly cut out like right now you would notice you would suddenly become aware that actually you're listening to this probably on an electronic device and that maybe that device has just failed whereas until the sound had cut out that device would have been fairly invisible to you and you probably wouldn't have even thought about it because it was quietly doing its job, not making a fuss, you know, just there in the background. And it's just funny how you know, our experience of everyday life is, is mediated through a, an absolutely complex array of electronic products that just quietly chugging away in the background doing their jobs and, and we don't tend to think about them very much. In today's episode, we'll be thinking deeply about our relationship with things. We'll be cutting between some people that I spoke to at a restart party in Kentish Town Community Centre and an interview with the man whose voice you just heard about emotional durability and gadgets. My name is Jonathan Chapman and I'm a professor of sustainable design at the University of Brighton. Emotional durability is a term that I coined, I guess, in 2005 when I published my book, Emotionally Durable Design. We don't throw stuff away generally. Uh, because it's broken, you know, cracked plastic or a blown chip on a circuit board or these kinds of things. That's not really the reason why we throw so much stuff today, particularly electronic stuff. It's actually because something's broken in terms of the emotional connection we have with it. So if you like, the relationship has malfunctioned. The hardware is actually perfectly fine in the majority of cases. So emotional durability, I guess, is a... I suppose it's a technique or it's a set of strategies and approaches that help us to rethink the way we design products so that they last longer so that they, they're not just physically more robust and repairable, but actually they hold a deeper place in the hearts and minds of the people that own and use them. The book can be thought of in two parts. So the first part really asks one big question, one big horrible question, which is why do we throw stuff away that still works? And that's, that's a question that will take you into, into developmental psychology, it'll take you into anthropology, you know, the origin of material culture, why do we have stuff in the first place? It takes you into consumer studies, motivation theory, into ecology, it takes you everywhere. It has what we call a broad epistemological base, which basically is a clever way of saying it draws in scholarship from pretty much everywhere. So the first part of the book basically is a, like a whirlwind tour of all the theories and ideas that help you understand why we chuck stuff away. 
And then the second part of the book says, okay, well, that's all very interesting, but what do you do about it? So the second part of the book speaks much more directly to designers, you know, product designers, fashion designers, people in crafts, jewellery, all kinds of areas, uh, and says, okay, so how do you design then products that people are less likely to throw away, people that are more likely to hold on to them and care about them for longer? And so that's, I suppose, in a nutshell, that's the journey of the book. So, you know, in one way, it explodes and blows apart the whole context of the problem helps us to see it more clearly and then it sort of puts it back together again but hopefully in a slightly new way hi my name's angus and what did you bring today to the restart party i brought with me a rather elegant aluminium tall lamp that i bought from a uh, furniture showroom years ago and it's never been working properly and i finally got round to bringing it in to get it fixed andrew did a superb job it took him about 15 minutes and he fixed it it's perfect and it looks great and i'm really happy what made you want to get it fixed it would be a real shame just to throw it away. It was quite expensive. I don't like the idea of wasting things. And I was also interested in seeing how to fix it and what could be done and whether it could be brought back to life. I'm really pleased that it could be. So what makes you want to hold on to your gadgets in general? What kind of emotional reasons do you have? Well, I'm very picky about the gadgets that I get in the first place. And then once I've got them, I tend to kind of not want to change them because I spent so much time thinking about them in the first place. When I wrote the book, I set out to to really try and speak to people interested in sustainability, you know, people who were concerned about waste and the throughput of materials and just, you know, destruction of the biosphere as a result of uh, production and consumption. But then what happened in the end was something quite different. You know, I don't think that mission worked. I think what happened in the end was something much better, which was that the book spoke really loudly to people who weren't really interested in sustainability at all, people who were interested in value and meaning and producing meaningful stuff not meaningless rubbish, you know, spoke to those people. And actually what's quite nice is when you speak to anyone in design, you know, fashion designer, product designer, textile designer, it doesn't matter. Whoever you speak to, whether they care about the environment or not, they're all interested in creating meaningful stuff that people care about and people love. Everyone wants to do that. So the book created this really interesting backdoor to sustainability, like a sneaky way in. For people which was quite nice i've still got lots of gadgets from a very long time ago so i've got a, a bang and stereo which is a cassette tape player that i still have it's got pride of place in my living room and uh hopefully that'll last for another i don't know 30 40 years and uh if it breaks down i'll come back again and see if you're still here yeah, it sounds like you, yeah, you don't. I don't mean it. you're still here. No, no, no. I mean, I mean yeah, I mean that's it. That's that's it. That's really interesting. Like, so it sounds like you don't say goodbye. You, you do everything you can to to not say goodbye. That's to right. You. Yeah, I'm a clinger on, and really, so uh, yeah, that's true. Well, that's brilliant. Well, that's very good for the environment and very good for your wallet. So it two, is. two things. Those, those, all those things together. That's right. They all go hand in hand. Right. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't have to say I mean. Uh, I can just say that I'm saving the planet, right. which is nice. Like, that's the thing. It, it, it's, it's, it's nice to have a personality that fits with those goals because like, a lot of people don't, and so you happen to have a personality which is good for the environment. So that's, that's good. That's a nice way of thinking about it. <laughs> Thanks very much. I'll go home feeling good about myself now as well as the lamp. One of the key theories as to why people hold on to stuff is that these objects, these, these possessions, if you like, they provide accurate reflections of who we are and who we believe we are, who we like to think we are and who we want to be. That's nothing new. Anyone who's interested in consumer theory will say, yeah, like, that's so obvious. But actually, to a lot of people, it's not really that obvious. Although if you're listening to this and that's the first time you've heard it, it will probably make sense nevertheless because it's just something we all do. We surround ourselves with objects that mirror and project. So on one hand, the objects mirror back to us 
images and ideas around who we are. And provided those reflections are accurate and desirable and things that we want to feel about ourselves, then we'll keep them. They will be relevant. But as soon as those reflections actually stop being accurate or start to suggest things that we no longer feel. So maybe we've moved on in our lives or maybe our ideals have shifted slightly, whereas the product haven't, then actually the product begins to appear somehow out of date or not quite as resonant as it once did. So that's the sort of mirroring potential of products. And then, of course, there's the projecting potential, which is a similar thing, but it's more outward. It's more overt. So it's okay. So between me and my private material world, I've got these ideals, these goals. But in terms of what I want these things to say to those around me, often they're similar, but usually there's a few different things going on in there as well about how we try and conceal and hide our insecurities behind a wall of material things. And some people refer to that as materialistic value orientation or MVO, which is an abbreviation, but it's basically just a way of saying we use objects to cast us within desirable roles and to establish a a false sense of status within large complex groups of people. What's your name? John. So what have you brought into the restart party today? I brought in a couple of old vintage portable record players that I was given by a friend of mine. I'd been looking for one for a while and uh, rather than buy one, he had these ones which he couldn't get to work. So I literally about an hour ago picked them up. So it's the first time I've seen them and I knew that this was happening. I saw it on my Facebook feed and came along to see whether these could be, could be fixed and brought back to life. So uh, that's what I'm here for. They're beautiful old record players. You rarely see a record player anyway now, but you don't see ones like this really at all. Not so much. I mean, there's a lot now because vinyl, of course, is on the up with the vinyl sales that are happening at the moment. And so there's a lot of kind of retro looking ones, stylized, a lot of kind of modern brands are kind of realizing that there's a desire for it. But actually, I wanted to get my hands on the real deal. So I have no idea. This one looks like it's German because all the instructions for volume are not in English. Lautstärke which I think must mean volume. This one is a, is a bush, but I, other than that, I literally have no idea. I mean, the plug on this one isn't even British, so, but that's the first time I've seen it. So we're going to see what happens. There's another way of looking at this, which is a bit more direct and simple way you could say, well, another reason why people hold on to stuff and love stuff is because it's ageing really well, you know, ages beautifully. Look at the material surface, look at the, the shine that's formed on the edge of that armchair, you know, or look at the softness of this leather strap and how it feeds through the buckle. Didn't right. used to do that. That's brilliant. I love it even more now. On the one hand, there's some pretty complex psychological phenomena influencing consumption and waste and that's true but then on the other hand there's there's actually some pretty direct straightforward things going on as well certain products have been designed in a way that they get better through time and they're easier to use the more you use them they get better and others don't they start to look shabby really quickly the hairline scratch on your iphone screen is pretty much ruined on the other hand you've got a pair of handmade grenson brogues or something like that products that are almost by accident emotionally durable there are things that you know, you want to treat them a bit rough. Things like leather bags, denim jeans, classic examples of things that have been designed to fit into mass manufacturing scenarios. I mean, denim jeans fit into a category of products that are incredibly competitive, price sensitive, occupying the fashion world, for goodness sake. How can anything be emotionally durable within a fashion context? And yet, actually, fashion is riddled with, you know, object heroes that have just somehow managed to find a place in the hearts and minds of their users. You know, you buy a pair of jeans and they're almost at their worst when they're new. After six months, they no longer belong to the brand. They're yours. They're yours now. Bulged and ripped and slightly changed colour in response to the way you've used them it's pretty complex and you know after a party jeans even smell a bit like the party it's kind of 
some very dynamic things going on with them. What makes you want to hold on to gadgets? I, I want to hold on to things that I feel like have more value because they do things in a way that they don't do them now. If they do them now, they don't, they don't do them in the same quality, if you like. But if I don't need a gadget anymore, I'll hand it on, I'll pass it on. But there is a bit of technology that actually, like these record players, they don't build them like this anymore. Uh, then I'll keep hold of it and want to keep them going. One of our students, Laura Bethan Wood, she designed this fantastic product that was a, a teacup. Some parts of the cup were glazed and some parts of the cup were not glazed. What happened was that as you drink tea and coffee, what originally looked like a white teacup gradually began to reveal this pattern, a polka dot pattern within it. You know, So the unglazed parts of the ceramic picked up the tannin in the coffee and it started to become this beautiful kind of illustration within the interior of the mug. And that's a fantastic example of emotionally durable design applied to a product, partly because you've got a product that's nice when it's new, but it gets better through use. But then on the other hand, the product's doing something, I'd say, a little bit, I don't know, political might be a bit overexcited, but it's doing something quite challenging, which is to say that ageing and staining and marks... These are great things and they're inevitable. You know, everything ages, no matter what you would like to believe, everything ages. But it's funny that the way we design products, particularly smart digital products, they're incredibly vulnerable, these things, to the process of ageing. And if you do have something like that that has a quality that you can't recreate or get from modern things, I guess that's both a, a practical and an emotional connection yeah. to that thing. Yeah, definitely. You want to see these things work and play as they were built for. And that's one of the reasons I've started listening to vinyl in the last couple of years, because, you know, much as modern technology is upgraded to digital and iPods and everything else, actually what you hear and the sound you discover is, is different. I want the real players that would have played those vinyl back in the day. I'm sure most listeners will be familiar with the idea of obsolescence, you know, whether it's planned obsolescence or whether it's just obsolescence as a, almost a side effect of continually evolving technological capability. So, for, you know, on the one hand, you've got a phone, you're perfectly happy with its camera, the size of its screen, but then it's very difficult to remain happy with it because now there's one that's very slightly faster, very slightly lighter and with a very slightly larger screen. And it's really easy for us to get cross and angry at people for that. You know, we say it's superficial, what are you doing? You're so unethical can't believe it but then on the other hand there is something deeply human about that where you know again as I referred to the first part of the theory trying to understand why is something in our bones almost that makes us curious about new things you know that there is something deeply human as well about the way we're drawn to novelty and we're curious about things that don't quite fit or that are, that are new and fresh I suppose the, the challenge is, of course, is that, you know, once upon a time, we may have been living in much smaller communities where the world was filled with mystery and mythology about why, you know, a rainbow appears and an elder will tell us that actually that rainbow represents a particular message coming from a particular person in the heavens who has now bestowed something on us for the next season it's going to be a good year next year you know whereas now we think oh rainbow cool that's what happens when you split light into the different right. things and life is kind of like that now you know I, I don't know if it's any less magical but it's certainly more explained and a lot of the mystery has been sort of stripped away and replaced with answers that are not up for discussion so i think what that does is it leaves this human animal this quite primitive human animal in a new context where we have to find those mysteries elsewhere because that quota within us that that hunger is still there and it needs satisfying so we go elsewhere looking for it and unfortunately we seem to have found the embrace of material products you know as, as, as one place to find it but it's short-lived because the mystery doesn't stay mysterious for long 
the, the empty promises made to us through a very slick Apple commercial. You know, it's, it's very attractive until you experience it for real, then it's not really so attractive anymore. But the next one probably will be. Much of the complexity and mystery of what goes on inside things like digital cameras and all incredibly complicated things, probably more complex than a satellite in terms of what's going on inside. The processing capability alone is probably far greater. But these little things that we carry around and don't pay too much regard to, much of the complexity within these objects is concealed, you know, within the plastic shell of the object and kept far out of sight. There are some quite practical reasons why this is done. The role of the user has not been up to now, really, to get too involved in the mechanics and the workings of the object. It's the role of the user has been to use the object. Um, but what is quite good to see is with the emergence and rise of communities of fixers and repairers is that people are starting to get a bit more interested in what's going on inside the object. And what happens then is you realise that product designers missed a massive trick up to now where in many cases product designers have been relegated to packages of technology. You know, so there's this technology, it's amazing, but we just create packaging for it which makes it look like a microwave or makes it look like a camera or makes it look like a phone so people know what to do with it and you know as I say there's a, there are some very practical and also commercial reasons why that is the case but it's quite a limited approach what's going on inside the product is this is un, it's an underexplored world in terms of user experience and how customers if you like can be invited to have a more meaningful and deep relationship with the stuff they acquire i often think it's like doctors like like people come in with their wounded electronics and and they get made better or they don't get made better here but i guess it's like a second opinion and getting an expert eye yeah that's right so there are a few things that could have been on this it could have been the plug or it could have been the wire it could have been as it turned out to be the uh, the on off switch on the cable or it could have been something inside once we opened it up and looked at what was inside it was quite a bit complicated very tiny little electronics and things and I could see that if it was something on that that Andrew may not have been able to rescue it he may I don't know or may may not but it was definitely more involved but it would be good to be able to rule out at least things like the 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 switches and the plug sockets and that sort of thing and to know it was a really sort of manufacturing type really technical issue also i've got a slightly better understanding of the gadget now so in a funny way it's quite nice knowing what's inside it what connects to where how it comes to pieces and i never really thought of that before i'd always thought it's a rather difficult thing to get inside you, do, you don't know quite how it opens or what box of tricks is in there but having seen it i found it intriguing and uh, sort of satisfying in a way so another interesting approach with emotional durability and design is to think about how the user can actually play a more active role in the creation of the products themselves in the first place there is potential for things even like electronic products to be sold in modules or in pieces you know kind of like lego bricks so that people are much more involved i guess in 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 customizing and shaping the thing itself that what the thing does and also how it looks to a degree it's not just so that they feel placated and some super official bond is created as a result of that because I actually think that's quite short-lived but I think what it does you know when you think about modularity and allowing things to be pieced together in the user's own way I think what that does is it begins to establish a deeper understanding within the user of how this thing works and and what does what so you know the large red square uh, that's to do with power you know, and the, the long, thin orange cylinder, that's where the memory is. So if, if you're listening to this and you can kind of almost imagine this strange kind of licorice all sorts type thing forming before your eyes, 
there's something about about that. Whereas if a person handed you a finished product that looked like that, it would probably look like some alien artifact that had been found somewhere, and it would be very difficult to relate to it or to know how it worked or what it did. But if you create this object yourself, you know, in inverted commas, then you you have a really deep understanding of what's what and why it's like that and how it works. But it also feels personal. So that to me is important in starting to establish a deeper connection between a person and a thing. It increases the likelihood of fixing and repair because when things do fail or when parts do require upgrading because you know let's face it there might just be a far more efficient processor or faster processor available in a year's time it's probably quite likely that there will be then you can exchange and upgrade but you're not exchanging and upgrading the whole product you're exchanging and upgrading that part which is quite interesting i think when we start to think about well you know when i upgrade my phone i don't really want to upgrade the whole thing what i want is a bigger screen but the other 98% of it i'm happy with so it's very odd that through product and industrial design for example we've got ourselves into this position where the industry is kind of serving up fully formed finished objects which represent little moments in time that remain valid for a matter of days and then that's it so as there's you know there's loads more possibility i think to to invite people to participate and to get a bit more involved. And how would you have felt if your gadget hadn't got repaired today? I would have been pleased that I'd made the effort to do something about it, and I would have been pleased that somebody who was skillful and competent had had a look at it and said there's nothing that can be done. And I think then I probably would have been motivated to go on and actually get in touch with the manufacturer and see if there's anything they could do in terms of repairing or replacing bits or something as a, as a last-ditch effort. And then ultimately, if, if, if I couldn't do more well, then I would have to say goodbye to it. The overlap for me between thinking about emotionally durable design and fix and repair, the overlap is where, for me, the most impact takes place. Because, you know, on the one hand, people say, yeah, we should design products that are easy to repair when they break. And I kind of say, well, yeah, we should. We absolutely should do that. But the problem is most products available today can be repaired. You know, they, they can be if you can be bothered or if you have the money in some cases or if you, if you know someone who can help you to spend a week going to the places you need to go in order to fix something. They're not easy to repair but they can be repaired. So there's a huge investment of time and energy involved in fix and repair. But I don't think that's the reason why people don't do it. I think it's more that people don't care enough about the things they own to bother finding out and to bother going to an event to do this. And, you know, in a way, I'm probably speaking to the wrong people right now because I'm guessing the people listening to this are already engaged in restart. So they're thinking, that's not the case. There's loads of people go to restart parties and fix things. And they would be right because loads of people do, but not compared to the people that don't go. And so I suppose what my research does is it thinks, well, how can we actually design products which people develop slightly deeper connections with so that they keep them for longer But then when they do fail and they do need fixing and they do need upgrade, the people are more likely to bother to do that because they're just more personally invested in the object. Sometimes, you know, my parents are clearing stuff out that they don't have any need for. You know, for example, they've got this old Hammond organ that's sitting at home and they said, listen, we're going to get rid of it. We don't play it anymore. You know, we don't know anyone who wants it, but we're not going to put it on the tip. We'll give it to a charity shop or whatever. Do you want it? As soon as I looked at it with all these amazing kind of 80s buttons 70s and 80s I was like yes I want it I, my wife always asks us where it's going to go in the house but that's a secondary question because it kind of speaks 
history and speaks of a story. I think there are technical reasons why some older products are easier to, to repair is often because they were assembled by people and things that have been built by people tend to be easier to take apart and repair versus things that have been built by robots and machines tend to be harder to take apart and repair, partly due to tolerances and the ways that they're done. So I think, you know, often we tend to see more vintage or older products at repair shops simply because they can be repaired with fairly conventional means. But then, of course, there is a psychological side to that where people perhaps still have those older products in their lives and that they anchor them to something that matters you know an old radio that might have been given to you as a wedding present for example even though the audio quality 30 years on might be incredibly poor and it might even only run on batteries which you know potentially not the best things in the world but the point is not that the point is that this thing matters this this is meaningful stuff you know this stuff this this radio it's not a radio is it it's a it's, it's as valuable as a photo album or a, a video of your kids. It anchors you in a precious moment in time and therefore we'll be repairing that thing as long as we can. So when we talk about emotionally durable design, there's an assumption that what's being discussed is that we should design things that last forever. A phone for life, a chair for life, a jacket for life. And, you know, whilst, whilst that might be an interesting project, that might be something interesting to think about, that's not actually what I'm talking about. What, what I'm talking about is trying to understand how we can make things last for longer. So, you know, some product categories, it might actually be a good idea to think about heirloom, you know, last for three generations. Whereas with other categories, like washing machines, for example, it might be more about saying, well, right now, you know, the lifespan of this machine is seven years what would it take to get it to 12? Because if you do that, you're pretty much halving all the consumption and waste associated with the creation of that product. So in a way, it's about product life optimization and thinking, well, how can we just make it last a bit longer? Because if you do that, if you start looking at the percentages in terms of the reduction in ecological and social impact, it's quite significant. Obviously, all of this makes sense. And you think, yeah, that sounds right. That makes sense. But how do businesses stay alive by selling 50% less kit you know how how does that work when you get modern devices now you don't have that kind of connection with them is that right not now but I'm sure in 10 20 years time I will do you know it's like all these things come around I still have my CD collection that I got had from when I was a kid it's all on my computer now but I keep it because I I wonder whether one day my kids are going to turn around and say I would love to see those CDs you used to have now that tells more of a story for me my CD collection even though I don't play them I can tell you almost exactly where I was when I was listening to it so it's not so much about the gadget but what music it plays and music is obviously very emotive it conjures up a a story in a piece of my life that I may not think about otherwise right it's like a collection of memories as much as a collection of CDs if the phone itself is the body then the data within it is the soul it's the kind of the spirit which is portable from one object to the next and I think that's the only thing really that makes it so easy to upgrade is that everything that's currently on your phone now will be on your new one don't worry but unfortunately in terms of ecological and social destruction associated with the creation of these products the soul the data that's not the problem (laughs) the problem is the is the hardware and the incredibly complex materials and processes that are required in order for these things to exist you know, in the first place. How will you feel if the vinyl players that you've brought in today don't get repaired? I want to keep them because I I feel like they could be repaired. I might take them to a shop and pay for them to be repaired because I feel like there's intrinsic value in them. I struggle to believe that they're completely beyond the pale, but it might take more than this evening to fix it. So I'll find other routes, I guess, or give them to someone else who knows more than I do 
and uh, maybe they'll have a go. I won't just simply ditch them. The values we attach to these very transient ephemeral objects is peculiar because obviously when we first come into contact with a new phone, not everyone, there'll be some people listening to this shaking their heads because they're not drawn into this. You know, they might think, I, I don't care. I, I've got my old Nokia phone with a cracked screen, black and white. I can only phone and text on it and I'm happy with that. I think, well, good for you. That's brilliant. That is brilliant, actually. But I'm not like that. I am very torn inside, you know, because on the one hand, I know that it's wrong and that I should remain content with what I have and not be drawn into this whole, yes, but I do need a bigger phone or yes, but I do need a faster phone because I'm often on the move and find some way of convincing myself that actually it's, it's right that I do. And I think actually I'm just coming clean and being honest because... I think a lot of people are caught up in this this odd... I don't think it's hypocrisy, but I think this, there's a very strange dualism going on where, on the one hand, we're very aware of, of what's happening and, and how we ought to try harder to have less and to be happy with what we have. Um, but then, on the other hand, there's still this thing in our bones and in our blood that does make us quite interested in newness and new things, new experiences. Thinking about the complications and contradictions in what makes our products emotionally durable while making this episode has got into my blood and my bones. I feel that I've now got as many questions as I have answers, but I always think that that's a really exciting place to be. Restart Radio is both a podcast and a weekly show that goes out at 1.30 on Tuesdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Find out more information about The Restart Project on their website, therestartproject.org. Today's restart party is over, so it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.